that's our bell. We'll go ahead and get started. Good to see everybody this morning. Um, feels like it's been forever since we saw each other. Yeah, I don't know if that's your fault or my fault. That was <laughs> but anyway, glad to be back. We've been away from Revelation. I know it's been kind of spotty, but we got three weeks left to cover chapters 19 through 22. So want to try to finish strong. Today we'll be in Revelation 19. That's where we left off three weeks ago before our trip. We were in chapter 18, but I know that's been a while ago, so what I decided to do was a brief reminder to kind of help us figure out where we were, and then we'll get into chapter 19. So this is just going to be a brief overview of 17 and 18 to get us situated. Then we'll do the hearing and keeping of chapter 17 and 18, which we didn't do last time. Then we'll get into chapter 19. So where have we been? Chapter 17, there is an elaborate description of the woman described as Babylon or Rome. In Revelation 17, John describes this woman as being clothed in scarlet, having crowns and diadems on her head, and this depicts Rome and ways in which she attempts to make war on the Lamb and on the saints. So that's chapter 17, a beautiful description of the harlot, the prostitute, the empire of Rome, and her attempt to make world and on the saints. And in 17 and 14, chapter 17 and verse 14, it says, the lamb, which is Jesus, ultimately defeats and conquers the woman. Chapter 18 describes the fall of the great Babylon. If you look at Revelation 18, if you got your Bible, Revelation 18, starting in verse one, it says, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was made bright with his glory and he called out with a mighty voice fallen fallen is babylon the great she has become a dwelling place for demons a haunt for every unclean spirit a haunt for every unclean bird a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast and so there you have the fall of rome described and along with the fall of rome in chapter 18 is also the disappointment of the nations who align themselves with rome and as you read chapter 18, the nations that would be disappointed are not really concerned with Rome as much as they're disappointed about the prosperity that they enjoy because they align themselves with the empire. And now that that's gone, they're disappointed and there's a private disappointment, uh, frustration from them. God's people in chapter 18 and verse 4 are told to come out of the woman. That is, don't align yourself with the Roman Empire. And sometimes 2 Corinthians 6 gets brought up. You remember that passage where Paul says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. People make that about marriage and a lot of other things. And it may have some application to that. But primarily it's about things like this. Paul says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers, meaning those that teach erroneous doctrines, ideas, and things that will lead you away from Jesus. And Revelation 18, verse 4 down through 6 or 7, is really that verse come to life. The Christians are told, if you want to avoid the plagues of Rome, if you don't want to fall with the empire that's crumbling, make sure that you come out of her. The woman looks beautiful, that is the Roman Empire from chapter 17, but she's really a prostitute in disguise that's on her way to her demise. And then, and then there is Rome thrown into the great sea. It's a prophecy that's also fulfilled in Jeremiah 51, 59 through 64, much like ancient Babylon, Rome is thrown into a sea, and it just depicts her sinking and going down. And most importantly, this is what I want you to see before we do the hearing and keeping that gets us into chapter 19. Go to Revelation 18 and read verse 20. Yeah, and by the way, if you were to read these verses together, Jeremiah 51, 59 through 64 describes ancient Babylon in the 5th century or whatever, what's going to happen to them when she falls. 
John uses almost identical language to describe the fall of Rome as both nations are described as being cast into the sea. But before we get ready for chapter 19, I want you to see what Christians and saints are commanded to do in verse 20. Revelation 18, 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. And so the Christians, as you round out chapter 18, Rome is falling, the persecution Christians were enduring is about to come to a cease, and you can put about in quotes, but because of that, Christians are told to rejoice, and then when we get to chapter 19, it's a window into what that rejoicing looks like. So just remember, chapter 17, here's the woman described her persecution on the saints, which she's ultimately overcome by the Lamb, chapter 18, the fall of Babylon, and then chapter 19 is the response of Christian saints to the fall of Rome. They're commanded in 1820 to praise, and chapter 19 has them doing just that. And we'll unpack how they do that and what that's all about. As we've done before, though, let's just look at the hearing and keeping of chapter 17 and 18. What's the practical side of these two chapters? Number one, just remember that everything that glitters isn't gold. Lamentations chapter 4 and verse 1. I'm preaching from Lamentations tonight. But in chapter 4 and verse 1, Jeremiah says, Oh, how the golden city has lost its luster. Some things that appear to be bright and successful and beautiful in God's sight are really tarnished and rusted and corrupted. And Babylon appeared to be successful and mighty and powerful, but success is only measured from God's point of view, and that's how we should view it as well. Reading Revelation 17 and 18 just reminds us that earthly empires, when people sometimes say things like this, as they would have said about Rome, and more about that in chapter 19, they would have said something like, this is the greatest country in the history of the world. Well, when you say great, what do you mean? And by whose standards? And what makes a nation great? It's ultimately submission to God. And whatever material prosperity is enjoyed by any nation, as we drift away from God, so does our greatness. And so every nation, specifically for us, America, be warned because God is exalted through righteousness. But everything that glitters isn't gold. Number two, don't marvel at the wicked because their reign is short. And that's what these Christians need to appreciate. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Babylon would eventually fall. And the admonition for you and for me in relation to this is spend more time with the New Testament than with the news. I think we can get overly concerned with all the conflict going on in our world, wherever it is. And it's important to be informed, but it's always wrong to be obsessed. The nations will fall. They'll do what they're going to do. But the reign of the wicked is short and temporary. So don't become frustrated. Psalm 1 and verse 2 says that the wicked, they're cast into the air like the chaff, but the righteous person remains stable and steadfast. Number three, we must be with him now to be with him then. Go to Revelation 17, and I'm getting this from verse 14. The woman, the harlot, is described, and she wants to make war with the people. But look at 17, 14. John says, they, that is, the beast and all of those aligned with Rome, they will make war on the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? Jesus. And the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are the called and chosen and faithful. And so Jesus overcomes, but so do those with him. To be with him then, we need to be aligned with him now. If we want to enjoy the victory that Jesus gives in the end, the ultimate victory, it's only to the degree that we're aligned with them now. And Revelation 17 and 18 is calling for Christians to make a decision. Whose side are you going to be on? Whose camp are you going to be in? Next, every Babylon eventually falls. Come out of Babylon and into Christ. We talked about that. A question to ask ourselves in light of this, though, is am I a Babylonian? You know, people in the first century in Rome, they didn't 
really view themselves all that wicked. I mean, you read of what's happening in the book of Revelation, and it's apparent. But people in the Roman Empire, you know what they thought they were doing? Just doing what they got to do to get by, just living normal life. But you know you're a Babylonian. Here's how you can tell. There's a lot of ways, but here's one way you can tell you've aligned yourself with Babylon. When she falls, you weep instead of rejoice. Do I have the Babylonian mindset? Do I measure success like the Babylonians? And let Babylon stand for any earthly empire in your mind, any kingdom other than the kingdom of Christ, because every kingdom will eventually fall, Daniel 2.44. It's just a matter of time. And I need to make sure that I haven't digested the doctrine of Babylon, the lifestyle of Babylon, and just really the hopes of Babylon. I don't need my success and my hope tied up in any other kingdom other than that of Jesus Christ. And the same thing is true for you. And so as we read chapter 17 and 18 and we read of the fall of Babylon, we need to ask ourselves, are we on the side of the merchants and the kingdoms of the world that are lamenting because as Babylon goes up in flames, so do their hopes? Or are we on the side of the Christians which says every time another earthly kingdom falls, it allows Jesus' kingdom to be seen with clearer vision by the world? And I think there's one more. Here's the last one. In the end, we reap what we sow and we often reap more than we sow. And so we should be careful. Hosea 11 and verse 8 says about ancient Israel, they've sown to the wind and they will reap the whirlwind. And they did. Psalm 126, 5 and 6 says that those that sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Babylon sowed wickedness and corruption and that's exactly what she reaped. And everybody in this room, everybody in the world, every day, we sow seeds. And then sometimes before we expect it or when we least expect it, then comes the harvest. We will reap what we sow, but the Bible also teaches we often reap more than we sow. And so we should just be careful. Babylon sowed to the flesh and they reap corruption. So that's chapter 17 and 18. The prostitute described the nation of Rome and then her fall in chapter 18. And Christians are commanded to rejoice at the fall. And now we're ready for Revelation 19. All right, so throughout the book of Revelation, there have been a few praise breaks. We can just call them that, little interludes and praise breaks. And chapter 19 is one of these as well. They normally praise God throughout the book of Revelation for something he's done or said or revealed about himself. Revelation 5, 9 through 13 is one of these. Chapter 7, 10 through 12. Chapter 11, 16 through 19. And chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. So throughout the book of Revelation, things will be described. Battle, a war in heaven, the plagues being poured out, whether that's through the bowls or whether that's through the seals being opened. And then there'll be these breaks where John the Revelator, he'll pause and he'll say, hey, pray, praise broke out in heaven as a result. And chapter 19 is the same thing. This time we know why they're praising God. Why are they praising God in chapter 19? Because Babylon is fallen. Exactly. Here's the question, though. If the Roman Empire would not fall for another couple centuries even, why is it or how is it that Christians in Revelation 19, well, chapter 18, they're commanded to praise. That's strange. And then in chapter 19, they actually do it. If many of these folks would die, because when you get to the end of Revelation, and if you're following my track through this, I believe that the book of Revelation was written to first century Christians, the first century context with a lot of first century fulfillment, with the exception, though, that Rome doesn't fall when John writes the last amen in Revelation 22, 21. There's going to be some more centuries before the Roman Empire actually collapses. And if you try to look up when did the Roman Empire fall, you're going to get a myriad of answers because kingdoms don't fall like this. They sort of disintegrate and then fade into oblivion. So how can these Christians praise God in Revelation 19 if it's true that I just gave you... Yeah, how did they praise God even though 
it wouldn't happen overnight and many of them would never live to see it happen. Many of them would still die under the thumb of Roman persecution. So how or why did they praise God in the midst of that? Bobby? So God and uh, all the people associated with God is victorious. Yes. They're just their winners. He's been telling them this from the get-go. And I'm with you. My question is, and I agree, and I think that's why they praise, but I guess the follow-up question is, why would I be happy about that if, quote-unquote, we're not going to win in my lifetime? Like, there's still going to be persecution. I still may die. I want to see Rome, if it were you, if it were me, wouldn't we want to see Rome vanquished in our own physical lifetime? Wouldn't we want to be able to enjoy earthly days of prosperity and peace? How do they ring out with these shouts of praise in chapter 19, even though for many of them, I'm going to go and say all of them, unless there were pockets of persecution that ceased in Asia Minor. Everybody that read this the first time would die before the Roman Empire fell. Andrew? I think from a worldly view, absolutely, they want to see Paul. Yeah. 100%. Because why would I want to go through oppression my entire life for no reward? But what we see from a spiritual point of view is there's a guaranteed reward. Yeah. You've already won. It doesn't matter what I go through right now. It's, it's deserving and it's worth it in the end. Yeah. I think that's right. I, here's a big lesson I take away from this idea in chapter 19 of praise, even though the victory isn't granted, at least physically, for another few centuries. The assurance of victory in Christ is more important than the specific time of victory. That we will win isn't more important to know than the day victory will actually be pronounced. That's more important. Figuring out when I'm going to win is less important than knowing that no matter what I will. Fixing my calendar to know when's God going to deliver me from X, and for them it's Roman persecution, for you and me, insert whatever. More important than figuring out when God's going to see me through is that he will see me through. And if we get that, we get our hallelujah that they had in chapter 19. That's far more important than knowing when. And I think we miss our hallelujah praise break that they have in chapter 19 because we undermine the fact that, yeah, I'm going to win, but I would really like for God to tell me when so I can put it on the calendar. For these Christians, what mattered more than knowing, hey, here's the date when it's going to happen, is just the fact that it would. And if that was going to happen, if that was going to be their lot, they could praise God as if it was happening that day, though many of them would be gone before it ever did. Russell? Well, it's also a guarantee. Yeah. I mean, we've all got children, and I'm sure they all have children. And, and, and both of them. You know, I'm worried about my children, my grandchildren. Uh, What does Hebrews 11.13 say about all of those mentioned in the roll call of faith? These all died in faith, having not received the promises as yet, but they greeted them from afar and considered themselves strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They died in faith. They didn't see it, but they praised God as if it was theirs. For Christians, when will be the greatest moment of praise and rejoicing for us? When do you think that's going to be? When do you think in your life you're going to praise God the most? This is an easy one for everybody. When? When we get to heaven, when Jesus comes back. That's right. But every moment of praise before that is getting us ready for that moment. So like God didn't want you to show up in full strength on the day of judgment. Like you've been stopping all this praise up. You've kind of been saving it, getting it ready for that moment. We're supposed to be pouring some of this. I know some of you are kind of conservative. You want to hold on. And then when I get to heaven, I'm really going to sing. I've kind of been humming my whole life. No. God says, I want you to praise me now. Because you already know you're going you already believe it. In technical terms, in the Old Testament, this is sometimes called the prophetic perfect, 
God will say, I've given you the land of Canaan, even when they're walking in the wilderness. It's as if they're already there because God can't lie and he doesn't lie. So when God says something, you can just know you're already there. That's Revelation 19. Though we're more familiar with passages like John 4, 24, and worshiping God in spirit and in truth, Revelation 19 also teaches us how to worship. It teaches us who's worthy of worship, who's supposed to give worship to the worthy one, what's to be said as we worship God, how does our confidence in the word of God shape our worship, and how should people who have had their prayers answered praise the one who has ultimately answered those prayers. One more thing before we read 19, 1 through 5. You remember the battle of Armageddon? It was mentioned in chapter 16 and verse 16. You don't hear much about it. It just says they were brought to this place and there was a battle on the hill of Megiddo or Armageddon. Well, that's worked out in chapter 19, if you can call it a battle. But something happens in 19 that lets us know how that worked out. All right, Revelation 19. Let's go ahead and read the first five verses. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and avenged on her the blood of his saints. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So John says, Revelation 19, 1, after this. What is after this? After what? When does this happen? After what? After the fall has been described. Again, Rome hasn't fallen yet, but after they've heard all of this, John hears this loud eruption in heaven. There's this praise break that comes out. Where have we seen this before? Do you remember the chapters in Revelation? There's two where a similar idea happens where John looks and he sees a multitude in heaven, large group of people praising God. Can you remember the chapters? I'll give you a hint. One of them is after six and before eight, seven, and the other one is after 11 and it's 14, okay? Kind of got mixed up. It's 14, okay? Chapter 7 and chapter 14. There you go. So there's a praise break in those chapters. Similar thing happens here. Now, in those chapters, 7 and 14, the praise is about, hey, we've been redeemed. We've been saved. In chapter 6, there's the seals opening. And then in chapter 7, John says, I saw 144,000 or an innumerable multitude praising God because they've been sealed. Chapter 14 is a similar thing. Chapter 19, though, is about the fall of God's enemies. You might write down Proverbs 11 and verse 10. In Proverbs 11, 10, Solomon says, when the wicked falls, the righteous rejoice. And that's exactly what's happening here. The wicked have fallen, the Romans will fall, and because of that, the righteous are those that rejoice. All right, chapter 19 and verse 2, there's a great multitude mentioned here. And this is probably, or it's really in chapter 1, he saw, he heard the voice, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, probably refers to Christians in general, but maybe even specifically those that have been martyred because they follow Jesus. And I'll show you why I think that's the case, that this praise is, yes, all the redeemed. But more than that, it's probably specifically people who had given their lives for following Jesus. Question, what do they say as they praise God? Verse 1, what do they cry out? Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So what does hallelujah mean? 
Finally, yes. I would say that's an interpretation of what hallelujah means. Finally, thankfully. But hallelujah is really, it's a compound word, and it just means to praise God. It comes from a Hebrew word, and this part is hallelujah, praise, and then Yah is just a shortened form of Yahweh. It means praise God. When John wanted to communicate this, he just brought the word over from Hebrew into Greek, and he just spelled it with Greek letters, and Greek is hallelujah, same thing. And it means to praise God, and that's exactly what these Christians are doing. Now, it's a word that only occurs in the New Testament and Revelation 19. If you underline in your Bible, note the verses. Verse 1, that's your first one. Verse 3, that's the second one. Verse 4, that is the third one. That's where the heavenly creatures say it. And then in verse 6, there's another one. So there you go. 1, 3, 4, and 6 are the only times the word hallelujah appears in the New Testament. But it's all over the Old Testament. In fact, there is a section of Psalms from Psalm 111 to Psalm 118 known as the Hallel Psalms. Because all of them either begin with or somewhere in those Psalms, they mention this phrase. Hallelujah, which just means praise Yahweh or praise God. And I don't think it's by accident that John uses the word hallelujah here and is prominent in the Hallel Psalms because in Psalm 111 through Psalm 118, yes, they're praising God, but the primary theme of those Psalms is God delivered us from persecution with the Egyptians through the flood. And now John picks up the same word and for the first time in the New Testament, he uses it. And God's people here have been delivered but not from Egyptian bondage and captivity, from Babylonian captivity, from the Romans. And so he uses the word to talk about deliverance. When you think about your own little theological lexicon or your own dictionary, is hallelujah in there? Like when's the last time you said that word, hallelujah, or it's equivalent, praise God or something along those lines. I didn't grow up in the churches, you know, and I've been in different church assemblies where this word was used a lot. People would say it all the time. And I don't know if people always appreciate or know what it means, but it is a biblical word, biblical terminology. Praise God, something of that sort. And they're praising God here because they've been delivered. Some of our songs have it, right? You've sung it in the songs. Sometimes it's hallelujah with an A in the front, and that's just the Latin phrase brought over into English. But it means the same thing. And it ought to be on the lips of those that are redeemed. We ought to be praising God for what he's done. Sometimes preachers and Bible teachers talk about the difference between praise and between worship and is there a difference i just know christians ought to be doing both it's right to praise god psalm 33 and verse 1 and that's exactly what you see these christians doing here one last thing on this word and that is every time you see it in the bible old or new testament it's always used with reference to who god never because somebody's surprised never just as an exclamation we might find ourselves using it that way but i'm just telling you it's a blasphemous use of the word if we just get shocked by something and our response is hallelujah, we're mis misusing the term. It was always used with specific reference for God and to God based on what he's done for us. And God takes this seriously. Psalm 89, 7 says, God is to be held in reverence by all those that are about him. And we ought to do the same thing. All right. They praise God specifically for a reason. It says that they praise God because they've been what in verse one? Amanda mentioned it a moment ago. Why do they praise God here? What is the purpose? Hallelujah for what? What was it? Somebody said it. Salvation. Yes. Okay. As Christians, what has God saved us from? What have we been saved from? Sin. Anything else? Death. Robert, you said death. Yes. Death. Anything else? 
Eternal damnation, yes. Yeah, so sin, death, and hell is kind of the three-point sermon people normally mention with that. We've been saved from that. What are they talking about here? What is their salvation? Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belongs to our God. Sometimes salvation is used in the New Testament, this word, especially in Revelation. It is talking about being saved from sin. Revelation 7.10, Revelation 12.10, I think it's used that way, salvation from sin. What have they been saved from right here, though? This isn't about being saved from sin, Bobby. I'd say deliverance or vindication. From what specifically? Yes. Yeah. From who or what? From the Romans. When we think about salvation, even when we sing songs about salvation, our minds, the ultimate salvation is yes, from sin, the devil, hell. Amen, absolutely. But there are other little victories, and when God delivers us from those, that's also salvation, and it's right to ascribe that same praise to God from those victories as well, or for those victories as well. All of that salvation. God delivers in the ultimate sense, yes, but everything you've ever come through in your life and I've come through in mine has been because God is a God that delivers, and we call that salvation. We cheapen salvation when we only think, well, yeah, God saved me from my sins, and the rest of life is kind of me. You know, I'm smart, I'm wise, I've got a plan, I've got a purpose. No, God is the one that's credited with all salvation. When it says things like salvation belongs to our God, it means if we're going to enjoy any rescue, any salvation, it'll come at the hands of God. And we need to learn how to appreciate him in that and give him the credit. All right. The next thing verse 2 says is they give two reasons for their praise. Why are they praising God in verse 2? Look for for or because in your translation in verse 2. What are the reasons? His judgments are true and just as his words, and he judged the great prostitute. That's Rome. What had the prostitute done to deserve this? What did Rome do? Yeah, corruption and persecution. That's at the end of verse 2. So then John says at the end, and Bobby mentioned this earlier, he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Hold your hand in Revelation 19 and go back to Revelation 6. Revelation 6. Revelation 6. And this is where those souls were under the altar. You want to see 19 and 6 together. And this is why I said I think the people praising God in chapter 19 may very well be specifically those who have been martyred and killed. Revelation 6 and verse 9 says, He opened the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's their question in verse 10. But then when you go over to 19, and when you go to verse 2, it says, His judgments are true and just. He's judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And then what's the last part of verse 2 say? He avenged his blood on, he avenged her blood on his servants. The prayer of Revelation 6.10 is finally answered in 19.2. And in Greek, it's almost an identical wording and phrase. John saying what they were asking for in 6.10 finally happened in 19. And God answered their prayers. It's right for them to praise God because he heard and answered their prayers. And I just think this is a helpful reminder. Maybe you make a note in your Bible to reference or cross-reference these verses. But do you see what they're doing? Yes, they're praising God, but they're praising him for what? Answer prayers. <clears throat> and I'm not telling you to write this down or you've got to have a journal or a catalog or something like that. But I am saying it is right for us to keep track of answer prayers as much as we 
offer them up and praise God. It'll humble us in the days when we feel like I'm really praying about something and God's not coming through. And we just remind ourselves, well, five years ago, I was worried about X, Y, and Z and God worked it out this way. I don't even know how he worked it out, but all I know is I'm not worried about it anymore. And God delivered and it'll help us as we pray to him. Now, these Christians prayed. We read, and there's some 13 chapters in between the prayer and the answer. I don't know how many months or years, but God did finally answer them. And their response to their prayer being answered was praise. Russell? I think we're all kind of alike in some ways. And I do think that we get what we ask for. Because sometimes God does what most of the time God does. You pray for it at 4 a.m. in the morning. By 6 o'clock, he's already got it in the mail or it's happening. Uh, it may be, you know, it may take time for God to work through people to get what He wants done. And what you're asking for, and we forget that, and then we forget to give God the praise. I talk about Russell. Now. You, you all may be different than Russell. We're not, but I mean, you know, I, I want something now, and I, I really want Him to help me get something done or get something out. I forget to thank him sometimes because hurt sometimes he does what he wants. I had a friend recently we were talking about God and deliverance and he was going through some troubles and he was praying about some things and he said, you know, I know God's going to bring me through, but if I'm honest, Hiram, I sometimes feel like God's a buzzer beater God. Like he always shows up right at the last minute and he said, we're kind of tired of buzzer beaters. I'd like to be out in the lead for a change and like know I'm going to get through and not always be on the edge of my seat and having God just bring me through in the nick of time, I would really like to know ahead of time. And maybe we felt like that before, but the reality is barely making it is still making it, right? If God shows up and he will, this goes back to the beginning of chapter 19. They praise God even though they wouldn't leave, live to see the physical deliverance in their day. If God delivers, that's what you pray for, right? And that's what God does whenever he chooses to do it. It's his prerogative. And maybe there's some stuff we're supposed to learn on the road to deliverance that microwave blessings and deliverance could never accomplish. And so God's delay is not because he's even cooking up a recipe to deliver us. He can do it with the snap of a finger. But there are some things that have to be produced in us that can only be produced in God's waiting only there and so God makes us wait and sit and trust and as a result of that we should praise let me finish one through five so we can try to get through the rest of the chapter here but the 24 elders jump in and they praise God it says they fell down worship God who was seated on the throne and what do they say in verse four amen and hallelujah what does amen mean hallelujah means praise God what does amen mean so be it, yes. They're putting that exclamation mark on what God has done to Rome. Yes, we're glad that it's happened. And then in verse 5, there's a voice that comes from the throne saying, Praise God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. What does the Bible mean when it refers to fearing God? And should we fear God? It says, Praise God, all you his servants, that would include us, and you who fear him, small and great. When the Bible says that we're to fear God and like keep his commandments, think Ecclesiastes 12. 13 and 14 or something like that. What does it mean to fear God? What do you think about when you read that in the Bible? You who fear him, small and great. Respect. 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 With, with awe. With awe? What is awe? Um, impressed by the power and majesty. Okay. What else do we mean by fear, though? 
like if somebody says, I fear snakes, do they mean they respect them? <laughs> that, they kind of do, right? Like they wouldn't get in their territory. But what does it mean when we use the word fear in normal context, in everyday context? Scared and afraid. Why don't we think that applies in the God realm? Like why do I said fear, we said respect, reverence automatically, which I don't deny. But where do we get the idea that that's, and I'm not saying you all have said this, I'm just, I'm thinking out loud. Where do we get the idea that that's all that? Just because when you read the Bible, when people saw God, what did they think was going to happen to them? They were going to die. Everybody thought that, that they were going to die immediately. They didn't just think, well, there's God, we respect. They thought, this is the last day of my life. I've never seen anything so bright and glorious and great. It was awe and reverence. But there was also a trepidation of sorts. And what I want to say about fear toward God is not that God wants us to be afraid that he has a short fuse, that he'll lose his temper with us, but God is sort of like the sun. We appreciate it and admire it, but we should fear to look directly into it lest we completely lose our sight. But if we fail to appreciate that it's there, we'll also lose our sight because we don't respect and appreciate what it's done for us. And so we do need to respect and reverence God, but God is also encouraged when people Tremble at his presence because he's so great and amazing, even though we know that he loves us. Go to Isaiah 66. Hold your hand there. Andy, you had something? Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, well, yeah, I was just going to kind of make the comment that to use the analogy of, of being uh, afraid of snakes, I think the reason why we don't ascribe like the same sort of fear to God is because a lot of the times we're afraid of something like snakes because of the we're afraid of the harm that they're going to do to us, and that's just not appropriate with God because He's not here to harm us. True, true. But the, the type of fear where it's kind of like, well, I'm not going to mess with them because you know you don't mess with something like that. You know that that that's the sort of fear. Correct. Yes, God is not out to harm us, and the whole phobia idea compared with God isn't a direct parallel, but I also don't think it's wise to completely remove fear from the equation. That's what the word means. Isaiah 66, Andrew, then I'm coming right to you. Listen to what God says about the kind of person he likes, and he defines fear so we don't have to wonder what it means. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord, but to this one, but this is the one to whom I will look. This is the person God likes. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who does what? Trembles at my word. That's more than just respect for the Bible. We should respect the word, but tremble at my word sounds like somebody's what? That's afraid. To disappoint, to fail, no, but ne respecting it to the degree of, hey, this is serious business. It's not a fear that paralyzes. Exactly, exactly. There's a difference. It's not a fear that paralyzes and says, hey, I don't want to do anything because I don't want to disappoint him or again that God has a short fuse and he's going to do away with it but I'm just saying God's not common and when people came into the presence of God there was a love there was an adoration there was a warmth but there was also an idea of this is amazing this is uncommon I've never seen anything like this and it may just undo me God always reassures them by the way in all those instances hey don't worry, John in Revelation chapter 1, Moses, take off your shoes. There's always that reassurance. But that natural instinct is what humans should expect when we come into God's presence because of who he is. Andrew, then Russell, then Revelation 19, 6 through 10. I think for me personally, what I relate that fear to is like that of a nuclear warhead. Because like in America, we've seen the devastation and the, the long-lasting effects of what can be done 
And so that's fearful. But we know that as long as it's not used against us. So in this case, like, God does not harm God's people. Right. So, like, it's not immunity. It's not anything like, obviously, your name will be blotted out. But knowing the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, all of that, if that were to be turned, I think that's exactly right, Andrew. I think that's exactly right. The fact that, hey, God has done this to the Babylonians. But I had better stay faithful, or it could happen to me. It's not an impossibility. Russell? Well, it's not a nuclear warhead. <laughs> We're just trading analogies. We've got snakes, we've got nuclear warheads. What else can we do? Well, from when I was growing up, if you got sent to the barn, uh, you knew what was fixing to happen. You broke the rules of the dad, fixing the And awaiting you at the barn is what they and you fear going to the barn. I mean, this day and time, that time, most of you all would call that child's health. But it's in the It gets your attention. Yeah. And you, you thought twice about violating fixing the rules. It wasn't a bad situation. I, I probably didn't make enough fixing the bar. Well, y'all hear me tell my kids we're going to the barn. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Revelation 19, 6 through 10. Then John heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the roar, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, these are the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Excuse me, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All right. John again sees this or hears this large multitude bring God in worship and there's this roar and then it says hallelujah why in verse 6 look for the word 4 in verse 6 they praise God for what the Lord our almighty reigns and um, when did God start reigning that's a trick question yeah always he always is reigning but for these folks it would mean a great deal if you go back up in verse 3 it says the smoke from Rome would go up forever and ever Suetonius, a Roman historian, wrote in his writings about the fact that Rome had this thing. She called herself Rome Eterna, which was a Latin phrase that means the eternal city. And when we went on our trip this past couple weeks ago, you still see signs up in Rome for the eternal city. Rome's called the eternal city. And it's ironic that John says, no, the empire won't last forever, but the smoke that will come up and be your destruction, it will go up forever and ever. And here we find out that God reigns and God's been reigning forever and ever. It's not domitian. The word for reigning or this idea of being in control, it appears nine times in Revelation and it means our personal God. He's the one that's ultimately in control. The bride of the lamb is made ready. That's verse seven and verse eight. It's not the last time John's gonna to refer to the marriage ceremony between the people of God and the lamb. You'll see that again in Revelation 21, one through nine. But just keep in mind, this kind of terminology applies throughout the Bible. God's people are sometimes called his bride. It happens in Hosea 2.19, Isaiah 54, 4 through 7. God calls his people, Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New, his bride. 
And then John seems to be describing, if you look at verse 8, she's getting dressed, that's the woman, the church. And then in verse 9, there's this invitation to a, to a wedding. Isn't the church already the people of God? Aren't we already God's people? What is this terminology about a wedding or getting prepared for a feast or a banquet? What's that all about? What's coming for Christians in the end? Andy? Heaven. And the Bible describes that often as a feast. If you're looking for references on that, see Isaiah 26, 4 and 5, and Matthew 8 and verse Matthew 25, I mean, Isaiah 25, 6 and 7, and Matthew 8, 10 and 11, where those passages describe the end time for us as a banquet, which in a few moments we're going to partake of the Lord's what? Supper. And so one man has said, these are the hors d'oeuvres that we will enjoy for eternity, right? The Lord's Supper is in preparation for, there's a final banquet coming. And this is what John describes with the marriage Supper of the woman. Who's invited? Revelation 19, 9. Here's one of these beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Blessed are those that are coming to this. Who does John see as being invited here? Or who would you say is invited? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Who does that include? Who would you say is invited to the marriage supper with the bride and the Lamb? Some of y'all know it. Y'all are kind of suspect. Like, is this right? Who's invited? Saints, yes, and who else? Everybody. If you heard this, just say a friend of yours invited you to a worship service in Ephesus or in Smyrna, and you heard this book being read for the first time, and you were on the fence. Uh, do I want to align with Rome, or do I want to go along with this new startup religion that's coming to our area known as Christianity? When you read about the fall of Rome in chapter 18, and then you get to chapter 19, and you hear, blessed are those who invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, you probably should be making your reservations. Everybody's invited. Only those that accept Jesus and respond to the gospel will be ultimately participants. But everybody's invited. And then in chapter 19 and verse 10, well, let me say something about 19b. Yeah, these are the true sayings of God. After he says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then he says, these are the true words of God. Why do you think he emphasizes that last part? These are the true words of God. Babylon's fallen. The people praise God. You're blessed if you're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then he says, by the way, these are the true words of God. Why say that? There were false prophets. And if you were a Christian in the first century, again, Rome's not fallen for another couple hundred years. Do you really feel victorious? You look around at your little house church, the congregation where you may be assembling. Does it really look like you all are on your way to a victory banquet? John says, doesn't matter how you feel. These same dark truths. And we need to remind, we can add Revelation 19, 9 onto a lot of things the Bible says to us. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. I don't feel like it. These are the true sayings of God. Blessed are you when you suffer for righteousness sake. Don't feel blessed. These are the true sayings of God. I've lost relationships for following Jesus. Family relationships have been mended. I really don't feel like a winner right now. Loved ones I know have departed. I know we're told, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. I don't feel like that's true. These are the true sayings of God. John sort of adds this oomph in there to remind the Christians, what I'm telling you is true. And you don't have to doubt it. And then in verse 10, John falls down and worships the angel. He'll do it again in 22, 8 and 9. Why do you think John does this? Falls down, he's seen all this stuff and worships the angel, or attempts to at least. Why do you think he does that? 
We know he's told not to, and it'll happen again in 22, 8 and 9, and the angel says, hey, I'm with you. I'm a fellow servant of God. Why do you think John falls down, though, at the feet of this angel? Some commentators say John probably thought this was Jesus because he was so overwhelmed. I don't know that that's true. The Bible doesn't really tell us why he does it, but what we see the angel tell him is, I'm a fellow servant with you. You must not do this. Where else does something like this happen in the Bible? Not in Revelation. But in the book of Acts, where a man falls down before somebody else who's not worthy of worship and worships him. What ha where does that happen? Uh, there, that could be one. Antioch of Pisidia, Acts 13. I was thinking about Cornelius. You remember he comes into the house of Peter, Acts 10, 25 and 26, falls down to worship. Peter says, get up. I myself am a man. You need to make sure that you worship God. And so... In this chapter, infused with worship, we learn God is to be praised, hallelujah and praise to God, and only God is to be praised, not even an angel. All right, let's finish 19. I'm going to read 11 through 21, and then we'll be done. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and Righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread down the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and of captains, the flesh of mighty men, of horses, their riders, the flesh of all men, both slave and free, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his great army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who is in the presence who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. All right, Babylon's fallen, that's why they praise Revelation 19, 11 through 21. In metaphoric terminology, symbolic terms describes how Babylon fall. There's one on the white horse. When we did our little Revelation coloring book, white always symbolizes victory. It's the same thing here. Jesus is described in verse 13. His clothes are dipped in blood. Imagine suffering at the hand of the Romans. You've been martyred. You've been killed. Jesus shows up. His robe's dipped in blood. He's paid the ultimate price. He shed his blood first. Hebrews 12, 1 through 5 says, For the joy that was set before him, he despised the cross, and he endured the cross and despised the shame. His blood that he endures is what helps us to endure even in the face of death, Revelation 2.10. So Jesus shows up in order to give the ultimate victory. He shows up with the heavenly host and with a rod of iron. And this goes back to Psalm 2 and verse 9 as an instrument, as a symbol of strength and judgment. Jesus uses the sword to punish the wicked. And I'll go through these last ones. There's an angel with an invitation. And then John sees all of these people destroyed. I said something about the Battle of Armageddon. And just let me tell you, what John describes in the end, you didn't read about a battle. You just read about Christians feasting on the flesh of their enemies, which is ultimately the Romans. This reads like an end time judgment, but it's not. 
It's about what was going to happen when the Roman Empire fell. And it's interesting that John says this because if Christians didn't have the mark of the beast, they couldn't do what? Buy, sell, eat, or do anything. But John reverses it and he says, you'll feast on their flesh. You will succeed. You'll persevere because you're with the one who's right. All right. At the start of the next class, we'll do the hearing and keeping of Revelation 19. Just three more chapters to go. Thanks for being in class and persevering.